I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers, it's Janie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. Before we get started, I want to warn you that this case involves the sexual assault and murder of a child, although specific details pertaining to the assault are not discussed. This case also involves disturbing details pertaining to the disposal of the body. These facts may be disturbing to some listeners. Please use discretion. I also want to mention that I recently posted a video to my Patreon account. The video is my chat with Dr. Shiloh, a forensic psychologist, and we discussed the time when a strange man followed me home and I caught him in my bedroom. If you want to check out that video and other bonus content, head over to Murderish.com, where there's a link to sign up to become a Patreon supporter. Now, let's get into today's case. When a young girl approached her parents asking if she could get a job, her parents were likely very happy to encourage her ambition. The young girl excelled at her job, delivering newspapers throughout the neighborhood. She quickly received recognition, raises, and adoration from the people she was serving. With the immediate success she was accomplishing, the young girl's parents knew their little girl would go far in life. There was no way her parents could know that this job would ultimately lead to her life being cut short. Join me as I walk you through the case involving Geralee Underwood.
takes us to Pocatello, Idaho. Known to many as the gateway to the Northeast, the town was founded in 1889. In those days, Pocatello had many travelers passing through on a journey that would hopefully lead to treasure. Gold miners and other pioneers used this piece of land as a resting point on their way. For decades, the Mormon faith has been prominent in Pocatello, and a majority of its residents are active in their religion. Today, the town is relatively quiet and typically uneventful. Pocatello has a lot to offer visitors, from state parks to natural history museums. The beautiful scenery and idyllic landscapes draw people from all over the nation, especially in early fall. Though beautiful, Pocatello does not boast of any major events after the gold rush. Unfortunately, one of the most notable events to come out of Pocatello, sadly, is the horrendous murder of one of its young residents. Jerry Underwood was born on January 9th of 1982 to parents Jeff and Joyce Underwood. She had an older brother and would later have four younger siblings. Ever since she was a baby, Jerry's parents described her as being joyful, loving, and enthusiastic. She was a great friend, a loving daughter, and a caring sister. She would volunteer to help care for her siblings, take on extra chores around the house to help her mother, and she made sure that anyone with whom she came into contact felt welcomed and loved. Jerry excelled in school and was active in her extracurriculars. She was known for continuously making straight A's, even though she was juggling many other activities after school. She loved her school and classmates so much, she hoped to run for class president in 1994. Teachers adored Jerry Lee and loved having her in their class. She was known to always give full effort into anything she was doing. She was an artist, a dancer, and a writer, and everyone loved her creative spirit. Jerry Lee and her family belonged to the local Mormon church and were devout in their religious practices. They attended the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints every Sunday, and young Jerry Lee regularly donated 10% of her newspaper earnings to the church. Jerry Lee's faith was one of the most important aspects of her life. Jerry Lee had long, wavy, sandy blonde hair and wore thick brown glasses. At the age of 11, she, along with her brother, began working a newspaper route. Every day, she would deliver newspapers in her neighborhood. She was also in charge of collecting payments from her customers. Jerry Lee excelled at her job and was rewarded by the newspaper at one point. Her customer enrollment rate was so high that she was recognized for being the best salesperson shortly after she began working. Jerry Lee had big aspirations, and it was clear to everyone who met her that she would go above and beyond her goals with ease. These goals, however, would never be reached, as Jerry Lee was abducted in broad daylight and never returned home. On June 29th of 1993, panic stirred in the sleepy town of Pocatello. On that evening, Jeff and Joyce Underwood called local authorities to report their daughter missing after she was seen getting into an unfamiliar vehicle while working her newspaper route. 
Immediately, the town sprang into action. Her dad, along with other neighborhood volunteers, began searching the nearby areas, calling out for Geralee in the hopes that she would hear them. Geralee's mother stayed back at their house, hoping this was just a case of mistaken identity and that Geralee would come home from her job without incident. In fact, Geralee's mother recalls looking out the window, waiting for her daughter to walk up the front steps, counting the tips she had made for the day. Volunteers kept searching and Joyce Underwood kept waiting, but there was no sign of Geralee anywhere. As the sun set that day, authorities officially declared this was a stranger abduction, and an investigation into the disappearance of Geralee Underwood began. After speaking to eyewitnesses of Geralee's abduction, it was determined that she was taken around 5.45 in the evening. According to one witness, a tan and brown-colored Buick pulled up along Geralee as she was walking. The witness said the vehicle came to a stop, grabbing the young girl's attention. The driver of the car and Geralee seemed to talk for a second before she got into the passenger seat of the Buick. The vehicle then drove off. While this witness claimed that it looked like Geralee had willingly got into the car, another witness said that Geralee had been forced into the passenger seat. This new information helped shape the direction of the search, and the investigation continued. Authorities knew they only had so much time before looking for a missing child could turn into looking for a body. They had to work fast. The day after she went missing, there was a prayer vigil held for Geralee at her church. Thousands came to pray for her safe return and to help search the neighborhood and surrounding communities for any sign of the little girl. Collectively, they walked countless square miles in search of Geralee. However, nothing was ever found that would lead investigators to any new information. Authorities set up traffic checkpoints at key areas and highways in East Idaho, ensuring that Geralee wouldn't make it out of the area without being noticed. Though their efforts were furious, there was not a lot of new information or leads to be found over the next few days. Exactly one week after Geralee had gone missing, there was an apparent break in the case. On July 6th, authorities were seen taking a suspect into custody. James Edward Wood, or James Godwin at birth, was born on December 9, 1947. He was born into a hard life, and one that wouldn't get much better as he aged. At the age of two, Wood's father was incarcerated leaving him with his mother, Hazel Godwin, living on their own. Wood and his mother moved to Pocatello, Idaho, where Hazel remarried. During this time, Wood later claimed that he was being sexually, physically, and psychologically abused by his stepfather. When he was eight years old, Wood's mother died in a tragic accident. While she was working in a potato factory, the building erupted into flames and she was unable to escape. Later in life, Wood claimed to have witnessed the death of his mother as he sat in school across the street. Later, however, it was discovered that he had concocted this story. Some say it was an attempt to gain sympathy. After the death of his mother, Wood went to live with his uncle Gene and Aunt Mildred Wood, where his last name changed from Godwin to Wood. 
While living with his aunt and uncle, Wood began engaging in delinquent behavior. After the death of his mother, he began fantasizing about raping and murdering girls in his class, and these sexual fantasies continued for the remainder of his life. Wood engaged in fighting, burglary, and arsonry, but his behavior grew increasingly more concerning as he got older. At age 17, he was caught stealing a car and setting dumpsters on fire while drunk with his friends. It was at this time that his aunt and uncle decided they were unable to handle their nephew, and Wood became a ward of the state. He was made to attend a reform school until he was released on the condition that he moved to Louisiana to live with his biological father and work for the chain-link fence installation company his father owned and operated. Desperate to no longer be a ward of the state, Wood agreed and moved to Louisiana. He lived with and worked with his father for a while, but soon he met his first wife, Angie Bell, who he married in 1967. He and Angie had one child before his first official criminal incident. In 1969, Wood was arrested after raping, robbing, and attempting to murder two young ladies he had met at a bar on Christmas Eve night. Though he slit the throats of the two women, both survived and were able to identify their attacker. Despite attempting to murder both women, Wood was only charged with rape, robbery, and assault, and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. On account of good behavior, Wood was released after only serving four and a half years of his sentence. Though Angie had divorced Wood after he was convicted of rape, the two remarried after he was released from prison. They had a second child together, but were divorced for a final time only a few months later. A few years later, Wood was arrested again for rape, robbery, and assault. He was sentenced to 10 years, but just as before, he was released after only serving six years due to his good behavior. After Wood was released from prison a second time, he quickly got married to a beautician named Yvonne. He and Yvonne bought a house with a few acres of land, where they began a new life together. Yvonne's daughter, Summer, from a previous marriage, also lived with the couple. Soon, Yvonne became pregnant and gave birth to a baby boy they named Jamie. While living with his wife, son, and stepdaughter, Wood found a job that he was able to hold down for a while. One day, as he was working in construction, Wood had an accident with a saw. He accidentally sliced deeply into his left hand, almost severing three fingers. Wood was taken to the hospital, and doctors were able to save his fingers, although he was told that his hand would always be disfigured and will more than likely always be weak. He returned home to recover from his surgery. When Yvonne's daughter, Summer, turned 14, she confided in her mother that her stepfather had been repeatedly raping her. Yvonne kicked Wood out of the house and filed for divorce. He left, taking Yvonne's credit cards with him. Wood continued working odd jobs and bounced around from place to place until he ended up living with his cousin, Dave Haggard, who agreed to let him live with him for a while. While living with his cousin, Wood began selling his art, typically paintings of landscapes done on old saws and other antique items. He struggled to hold down a regular job during this time. 
The home Wood shared with his cousin was in Pocatello, Idaho, less than a half a mile from where Geralee lived with her parents. Leading up to Wood's arrest, those who were closest to him grew more suspicious of his actions. Just a couple of days after Geralee disappeared, Woods, his cousin Dave, and a few other friends went on a camping trip together. Dave noticed that his cousin, who was normally very talkative and outgoing, seemed very subdued and almost nervous. Dave was not the only one who grew worried at Woods' behavior. While Wood was away from the main campsite, the entire group discussed how different he was acting. One person even wondered aloud, whether he had something to do with Geralee's disappearance. Though the group was suspicious, the conversation ended and no further action was taken. When everyone returned from the camping trip, Dave noticed that Wood had thoroughly cleaned his Buick and then he had parked it behind the limo that Dave owned where it was not visible from the street. Curious whether this was just a coincidence, Dave slightly moved his limo making the Buick once again visible. Minutes later, Wood ran outside to reposition his Buick to be hidden by the limo. Dave's suspicions grew even stronger. He went to the garage and saved the bag of the vacuum that Wood had used on his car, as well as any other cleaning supplies he could find that his cousin had used within the past few days. Dave hid everything he'd collected in his house to make sure that Wood couldn't get rid of what he thought might very well be evidence. Around that same time, Wood's aunt, Mildred, called the police to give a tip. Because of his violent and delinquent history, Mildred believed that her nephew was more than capable of committing a crime of this nature. She told investigators how important it was that they look into Wood as a suspect. After receiving Mildred's tip, authorities went to Dave's house where Wood was living, to see if they could spot anything that would connect him to Geralee's disappearance. When they arrived at the house, authorities spotted a partially hidden brown and tan Buick similar to the one described by the eyewitness. They took photos of the car, but the eyewitness was not able to verify whether that was the exact car she had seen. There was another tip called in by one of the acquaintances who was on the camping trip with Wood. She recalled for authorities how odd Wood acted whenever the disappearance of Geralee was brought up, and how he was not acting like himself. Though authorities made note of the tip, there was not much that could be done with the information she had given them. They continued to look for more information that could concretely connect Wood to the disappearance of Geralee. Dave's suspicion of his cousin continued to grow. He eventually called his sister to talk about what his next move should be. Dave's sister knew that Wood had been hanging out with Liz Smith the night that Geralee went missing, so she decided to call her and asked if she noticed anything strange about Wood that night. Liz told Dave and his sister that Wood had left only minutes after Geralee had left, promising to get beer, but he never returned. The group assumed that Wood had gone home instead. It was at this point that Dave decided to tell the police what he knew. (music) 
Ishers, do you ever have trouble sleeping but don't want to pop a pill to help you get a good night's rest? Let me tell you about Psalm Sleep, the sleep drink in a small can. Think of it as one last treat before you hit the hay that can also help you get to sleep fast. Psalm Sleep's berry-flavored drink is a drug-free, non-habit-forming delicious drink that will help you fall asleep in about 30 minutes. I am a stickler for clean ingredients in my diet, so the first thing I did was read Psalm Sleep's nutrition label. I was so impressed to find that their drinks are made of natural ingredients that are already in your body, such as magnesium and melatonin. The drink is also non-GMO, vegan, and allergen-free, and contains no artificial colors or flavors. Here's the best part. You won't wake up with the groggy hangover that some other sleep aids give you. With Psalm Sleep, you'll wake up clear-headed and ready to tackle the day. My picky teenager and my husband recently started drinking Psalm Sleep, and both said how much they loved the flavor. My teenager said it felt like she was having a cheat drink, and she couldn't believe the entire can had only 40 calories. Psalm Sleep also offers zero-sugar drink options for those who keep a close eye on their sugar intake. Right now, Psalm Sleep is offering our listeners 15% off their order. Head over to GetSom.com. That's G-E-T-S-O-M.com, no E. Use code MURDERISH for 15% off at checkout. Betty Broderick thought she had the perfect life and the perfect marriage, until one day in 1989, it all came crashing down. The once traditional housewife murdered her ex-husband and his new wife. From the Los Angeles Times comes a new true crime podcast, It Was Simple, The Betty Broderick Murders, hosted by award-winning writer and reporter, Pat Morrison. I've been aware of this case for a long time, and what's always stuck with me is the question of whether Betty Broderick was a mentally battered woman, and that is what drove her to kill two people. Or if these murders were cold, calculated, planned, and premeditated. I'm currently on episode three of the podcast, and I'm reminded of just how fascinating, shocking, and utterly tragic this case is. The podcast brings insight from people who've not spoken about the case publicly. This case is three decades old, but after you listen to even one episode, you'll understand why the case still captures attention. Every binge-worthy episode of It Was Simple, The Betty Broderick Murders is available now, so download today from wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Dave entered the police station armed with the evidence he had collected while observing his cousin's suspicious behavior. America's Most Wanted had been informed of the abduction of Geralee Underwood and they realized that this case may be in need of national attention. When Dave arrived at the police department, personnel from America's Most Wanted were there as well, gathering as much information as they could in an effort to get Geralee's case the attention it so desperately needed. Dave asked to speak with someone investigating Geralee's disappearance, and he told them about his suspicions. He told authorities that his cousin, had been living with him for a few months. He recalled Wood's criminal history, though he admitted he was unsure of what his crimes were. He also told investigators that he had observed Wood furiously cleaning out his car 
the day after Geralee disappeared. He let them know that Wood was unaccounted for the night of Geralee's abduction. Though he had physical evidence with him, Dave said that he would not be willing to give it up until Wood was in custody. Understanding that this was out of fear, investigators agreed that Dave could keep the physical evidence until Wood was behind bars. Based on the observations of Dave Haggard and the multiple tips that had been called in pointing to Wood, authorities believed they had enough information to make an arrest. On July 6th of 1993, one week after Geralee was kidnapped, James Wood was arrested. Wood spent the first 11 hours of his arrest sitting in an interrogation room with investigator Scott Shaw. In those 11 hours, confessions would come to the surface that nobody expected. As preparations for trial began, Wood began to talk, revealing the story of his crime-ridden life. The day following Wood's revelations, Geralee's body was recovered on July 7, 1993. Before disposing of it, Wood had cut Geralee's body into pieces. Her right hand and right calf were never recovered. The mortician recalled staying up all night when she received Geralee's remains. Unfortunately, she was unable to assemble the remains to a state that would allow the Underwoods to view their daughter's body before they laid her to rest. Wood was charged with 12 felony counts for his crimes against Geralee, which included abduction, rape, and murder. Judge Windmill presided over the trial. Public defender Monty Whittier served as Wood's lead defense counsel. Prosecutor Mark Heideman headed up the case against the defendant. The defense had their work cut out for them, as Wood seemed to be talking about the case to anyone who would listen. Wood had free access to telephones while he was incarcerated, and he made frequent use of that privilege. The local press recalls the sheer volume of calls they received from Wood as he awaited trial. During these calls, he would provide details, both fact and fiction, which were then reported by the media. Wood spoke about crimes of which he was accused, as well as his childhood memories. It seemed as though he wanted to get his life story out to the public. Wood's attorney consistently requested that he not reach out to anyone to give away details of the case that are not already public knowledge. Whittier pleaded to have all phone privileges taken away from his client. The phone privileges, however, remained and Wood continued to talk. Whittier's initial approach with Wood was to explain over and over to him that his incessant talking would destroy any chance of having a fair trial. Eventually, Whittier realized that he was not getting through to Wood. This is when he decided on a new approach. Likely knowing that Wood wanted everyone to know his story, Whittier approached his talkative client with a movie and book release deal. Whittier told Wood that if he signed the contract, he could secure a book deal for him that could eventually be turned into a movie. This tactic worked, and an eager Wood signed the contract. Whittier then explained to his client that nobody would buy a book if all the details that were inside of the book were already public knowledge. He once more encouraged Wood to stop talking to the press, this time for the sake of the book. 
Wood finally listened and ceased all contact with the press. By the time the trial began, there were a variety of stories circulating concerning what happened to Geraldy Underwood. Despite inconsistencies in the varying stories, the one commonality was that James Wood was the person responsible for abducting her on June 29th of 1993 and subsequently murdering her. Because this was widely accepted as fact, it came as a surprise to all when Wood decided to plead not guilty on August 31st of 1993. His plea, however, would not last long. According to Wood, while in prison, he found God and decided to become a practicing Mormon just as the parents of his victims were. After this apparent transformation, on September 14th of 1993, a psychiatric evaluation was conducted on Wood to ensure that he was of sound mind before he was allowed to make any decisions that would alter the trial. After passing the psychiatric evaluation, Wood changed his plea from not guilty to guilty. He was recorded as saying that he didn't want to put the Underwoods through the trauma of sitting through a trial where details of his crime against their daughter would be discussed. His pleading guilty, apparently, was an attempt to spare the Underwoods from what would surely be a horrific trial. Wood requested to bypass any preliminary hearings and trial and requested instead that the trial go straight to sentencing. The court obliged and a sentencing hearing date was set. At the sentencing hearing, the jury was informed of the nature of Wood's crimes against Geraldine Underwood. His confession to investigator Scott Shaw was used to piece together what happened to Geraldine after she was forced into his vehicle. During this time, I've really appreciated home delivery of necessary items like food. Sunbasket has really come through for my family and me, with their healthy, great-tasting meals delivered right to my doorstep. I love that Sunbasket caters to a variety of diets with options for paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean, vegetarian meals, and more. Sunbasket is perfect for busy people who don't have time to spend hours in the kitchen preparing dinner because all of the ingredients come pre-portioned and ready to go, saving a ton of time. I was excited to learn that Sunbasket uses all organic produce, and their meal kits allow you to have dinner ready in less time than it takes to prepare a grocery list and drive to the store. With meals like roasted salmon with miso-glazed eggplant, Sunbasket is not your average meal kit service. With everything going on right now, you'll be happy to know that Sunbasket has increased sanitation frequency in their facilities beyond their existing strict food and safety policies. Right now, Sunbasket is offering $35 off your order when you go right now to sunbasket.com murderish and enter promo code murderish at checkout. That's sunbasket.com murderish and enter code murderish at checkout for $35 off your order sunbasket.com slash murderish and enter promo code murderish. I get so overwhelmed with all of the content I should be posting to all social media platforms, especially editing and formatting, and then doing it all over again for a different social media platform. This is where Issue comes to my rescue. 
With Issue, I only create content once and boom, it's ready to post on any platform. This has been a game changer for me because I save so much time. Issue is essentially a one-stop tool to design beautiful digital content and then distribute it as a brochure, magazine, social media post, and more. Issue works perfectly for designers, marketers, creators, publishers, or anyone wanting to up their content game. Everything you create with Issue is optimized for social platforms like Instagram and Facebook and for posting on a website. You can even upload a PDF and Issue will work its magic, allowing you to make that boring PDF into beautiful content for social media. Creating content with Issue is so easy and will save you a ton of time. Best of all, it's free to get started with Issue. Go to issue.info slash murderish to sign up for your free account. That's I-S-S-U-U dot info slash murderish to sign up and let them know you heard about it from this show. Remember, that's dot info, not dot com. Go to I-S-S-U-U dot info slash murderish to set up your free account today. On the evening she disappeared, Jerilee was going door to door doing a payment collections run for all of her customers. She knocked on the door of Liz Smith's house. Liz had some friends over at the time Jerilee came over to collect payment. James Wood was one of the friends who was at Liz's house at the time. When Jerilee arrived, Liz wrote her a check for her newspaper subscription. When Wood saw that Jerilee was leaving, he excused himself saying that he was going to the store to get more beer for the group. Wood ran out of the house, got into his Buick, and drove after Geralee. A neighbor down the road witnessed a Buick pull up beside Geralee. He claimed to have seen her get into the car and watched as it drove off. This was the last time anyone saw Geralee alive. Wood told investigators that after he got Geralee into his car, he had her hide on the floorboard of the passenger side seat. He said they drove around for a while before he stopped for gas and beer. He threatened Geralee to stay on the floorboard and said that he would kill her and her family if she tried to escape while he was gone. Likely out of fear, Geralee stayed hidden. When he got back into the car, Wood said he offered Geralee a beer, but she declined. He then began groping her until she yelled at him to stop. Wood said he continued driving north for a while. He was listening to the radio when he heard that traffic checkpoints had been set up to help aid in the search for a missing child. He realized that he would be unable to leave the area without someone noticing him with Geralee. Wood turned the car around and started driving southwest to avoid the checkpoints. He said that during their drive, Geralee spoke about a clogging class that she was in and also inquired as to why he had taken her. Sometime during the night, Wood said he stopped the car in a secluded and wooded area where he sexually assaulted Geralee. Afterward, he said they spent the night where they had parked. Geralee slept on the floorboard of the passenger side of the car while Wood slept on the seat next to her. The two woke up the next morning and Wood said he continued driving southwest. They were at an area close to Snake River, about 20 minutes west of Pocatello, when Geralee said she needed to use the bathroom. Once again, 
Wood said he found a wooded and secluded area to park and hide the vehicle. He said Geralee got out of the car to go to the bathroom, with him following close behind. At this point, he took out his gun, aimed it at the back of Geralee's head, and shot her twice, killing the young girl. Wood said he covered her body lightly with leaves and dirt, and then returned to his car. Wood said he drove back to Pocatello and witnessed a town that was tearing itself apart, looking for the little girl that he had just murdered. When he arrived at his cousin Dave Haggard's house, he began meticulously cleaning his car and then parked it behind Dave's limo, hiding it from view. He then began waiting to see what would happen as the community continued to search for Geralee. As the investigation continued, Wood said he grew more fearful that her body would be discovered and that he would be connected to her murder. On the morning of July 6th, the day he would be arrested, Wood returned to Snake River, where he had left Geralee's body. According to Wood, when he returned to the body, he committed crimes against Geralee once more, details of which I will not get into. Wood said that with an axe and a saw, he began dismembering her body. This took hours. Wood said he threw her remains into the river that lay below him. When he was done, Wood said he realized that he was soaked in blood, so he jumped into the river to wash off. He said he disposed of the clothes he was wearing in the river, which included his t-shirt and shorts. He then changed into clothes that he had in his car and drove back to Pocatello. Later that same day, Wood was arrested on suspicion of being connected to Geralee's abduction. During his interrogation, Wood initially denied any involvement. He claimed they had the wrong guy. Eventually, when confronted with the fact that investigators had an eyewitness, Wood conceded that he had picked up Geralee, but they had just driven around and he eventually dropped her off. He casually mentioned that he was surprised authorities had not found her yet and that she must still be wandering around trying to get home. Still not convinced, authorities continued pressing Wood for a full confession. After hours of interrogation and multiple false confessions, he confessed to Geralee's abduction, rape, and murder. He told authorities that they would find her body strewn throughout Snake River. Wood's defense attorney was able to offer up no mitigating factors that could ease his sentencing. The jury then began their deliberation. After hearing the details of his crimes, the jury sentenced James Wood to death by lethal injection. The defendant was described as appearing emotionless as his crimes were reported and his sentencing was read aloud. He was quietly escorted back to his cell to await his execution date. After sentencing, Wood signed an affidavit that requested all appeals be dropped so that his execution date would happen as soon as possible. Though Wood pleaded guilty and seemed welcoming of the death penalty, there were mishaps that caused his case to be re-examined more than once. Wood's sentencing had been decided by a jury in 1994. However, a subsequent Supreme Court ruling declared that in cases where a capital punishment is handed down, 
The sentence shall be decided by the judge, not the jury. Wood's case was re-examined in the context of this new ruling. However, his sentencing was upheld. Later, the trial itself was called into question when a connection between the judge, the defense team, the prosecution team, and the Mormon church was brought to light. An appeal was submitted stating that the Mormon view of blood atonement, where one pays for their transgressions with the shedding of their own blood, is what caused Wood to be sentenced to death. The county in which he was tried was heavily influenced by the Mormon faith, so much so that the judge, along with various members of both the defense and prosecution teams, were members of the same church that Jerilee's parents attended. With Jerilee's father being a prominent elder of the church, the appeal contended that it would be easy for those involved to have personal biases against the accused. The possible relationships between all parties involved and the Mormon faith believing in blood atonement could have been what caused Wood to be sentenced to death rather than life in prison. In response to these possible connections, Judge Winmall responded that she acted in accordance with her position. She ruled without bias and did not allow those in her courtroom to act with bias. It was also argued that the idea of blood atonement was an outdated practice which was no longer relevant. The fact that blood atonement was brought up was very offensive to those in the Mormon church who were part of this case. Joyce Underwood, Jerilee's mother, went so far as to allege that if they had been any other religion, no one would have ever doubted or questioned their seeking of the death penalty for the man who brutally raped and murdered their little girl. A punishment, many could argue, regardless of faith, is fitting based on the brutal crimes to which Wood admitted. The appeal also pushed hard against the defense led by Monty Whittier, claiming that he did not try to the best of his ability to defend James Wood. Because of the apparent connection between himself, the Mormon church, and the Underwood family, Wood's appeal lawyers claimed that Whittier exerted minimal effort for his client. Whittier acknowledged that there were some things he would have done differently looking back on the case. He claimed, however, that there was never an instance where he was willfully negligent or incompetent in the defense of Wood. One regret that he acknowledged was not pushing harder to have phone privileges taken from the defendant. The sheer amount of information Wood leaked to the press was one of the biggest hindrances Whittier faced while trying to defend his client. Eventually, it was determined that Judge Windmill acted without bias or malice toward the defendant, and both sides were determined to have been fair in their proceedings. No change of decision was made, and thus, James Wood remained on death row awaiting execution. While on death row, Wood began experiencing shortness of breath and chest pains. When he collapsed, guards called for an ambulance to take him to the emergency room. Though paramedics were called quickly, Wood was pronounced dead on arrival. No further life-saving action was taken. The autopsy of his body revealed that Wood had a weakened heart and lungs, and it was determined that he died of natural causes relating to this. Though no specific condition is available to the public, a heart attack is most commonly accepted as being what killed him. Many families were able to get answers after Wood was arrested. 
while in the interrogation room with investigator Scott Shaw, Wood began confessing not only to Geralee's murder, but to countless other rapes, robberies, and even attempted murders. He recounted for Officer Shaw the names, dates, and locations associated with each crime he had committed. After Wood was sentenced to death, he continually asked for Shaw to visit him, a request that Shaw obliged. They met weekly, sometimes talking about the crimes Wood had committed, and other times talking about trivial things like fishing or camping. Through his weekly interactions, Shaw was able to better understand the mind of a serial rapist, something that would be important for the rest of his career. Scott Shaw would later co-write a book that included details about the disturbing thoughts which circulated in Wood's mind. Though he was only ever tried and convicted for the rape and murder of Geralee Underwood, Wood is believed to be responsible for up to 85 cases of rape and countless robberies. Geralee's parents, Jeff and Joyce, have not moved out of the family home they shared with Geralee. At a park nearby, there is a small stone memorial commemorating the memory of their daughter. The Underwoods have consistently attended therapy since the death of their daughter. They've reportedly found healing and support through their church and their faith in God. Jeff, in an extraordinarily compassionate move, even took time to learn more about his daughter's murderer. Jeff, apparently interested in learning what may have led James Wood to commit such horrific crimes, requested from the prosecutor information about Wood's life and childhood. After learning more about Wood, Jeff expressed an understanding of how the convicted man could have made certain choices in life. He even expressed a certain level of compassion for his daughter's murderer, given his upbringing. The Underwoods have said that in life, Geralee was always good about forgiving others, so that is what they have tried to do after her death. The Underwoods know that they will be with their little girl again one day, and that brings them comfort. Though they still grieve and miss her, they find comfort in knowing that Geralee is now in a better place, a place they know their intelligent, kind, hardworking, and loving daughter, who would have been 38 years old today, is making much brighter. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. If you'd like more info about the show or me, go to Murderish.com. On the website, you can sign up to support Murderish through Patreon and have some of your dollars donated to a worthy nonprofit organization. The website also has a link to buy Murderish t-shirts and other merchandise. That's Murderish.com. If you want to connect on social media, head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you like the show, hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about the show. I'd love for you to leave the show a review in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanan of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Lincoln Edgman. In order to tell true crime stories on this show, information is gathered from various sources. Stick around after the episode's closing music if you'd like to hear a list of sources used for the episode. As always, Ishers, 
Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Sources for this episode include the Times News December 13, 1993 article on Murderpedia.org by Juan Ignacio Blanco, an article by Nate Eaton on KSL.com, an EastIdahoNews.com article dated October 16, 2016 by Nate Eaton, Find Law's Supreme Court of Idaho Case and Opinions at CaseLaw.FindLaw.com an article dated July 13th of 2019 at killer.cloud, the serial killer database, an Associated Press article dated December 6th of 1994 by Mark Warbus, an article dated December 4th of 1994 at the Times News. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.